Good morning. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Um, as he said, we are in a series going through the book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians uh, was a letter written by a man named Paul to a church that was about five years old in the city of Corinth. And today we hit chapter 14. Chapter 14 is the last chapter in this section from 12 to 14 where Paul is addressing their use and the practice of spiritual gifts when the church gathers for worship. And so here's what I want to do today. Uh, I want to ask one question. One question. Here it is. Why does the church gather for worship? Why why does the church do what we're doing today? For 2,000 years, Christians have done what we're doing today, and I want to ask the question, why? Uh, If you think about what we're doing, it's a a little bit weird. So if someone says to you, uh, hey, what do you do on Sundays? Uh, Your answer might typically be, uh, I, I go to church. But if you slow down, you break down the answer, and you set it like this. Uh, hey, hey, what do you do on Sundays? Uh, I, I get together with a few hundred people, and we, um, you know, we sing some really old songs, and uh, we listen to somebody talk about an ancient religious book, and we eat bread and we drink wine that our religious leader said was his body and blood. Want to come? It's a little weird. So again, I ask the question, Why? Why? Why do we do this? And I ask because Paul is certainly going to correct what they're doing, but he's going to correct what they're doing with why they do it. He's going to correct what they do when they gather with why they gather in the first place. And so here's, here's what was happening in Corinth. Tongues, the gift of tongues, which I will define in a minute, became to them this true sign of spirituality. It became this marker, this flag of look how spiritual I am became a look-at-me fest when they would come together. And so what Paul does is he enters in, and in chapters 12 and 13, he lays a foundation. And his foundation goes like this, that, hey, gifts of the Spirit, they're, they're good, but they're for the common good. They're, they're given to you for the good of others. It's, we're meant to show our unity in our diversity, one body, many members. But listen, hey, I, I, I want you to desire the greater gifts. There's some greater gifts out there, and I want you to desire them. But listen, I'm going I'm to show you a more excellent way. The more excellent way is love. And so Paul lays this foundation, and today what he's going to do is he's going to take the foundation that he has laid, and he's going to apply it to their use of uh, prophecy in tongues when they gather for worship. And in doing so, he's going to answer our question, why do we do this? Why do we do this? So let's go. Verse 1. Pursue love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul opens up uh, with pursue love. This is his leading edge. It's his opening imperative. And now, um, chapters 13 to 14, there is no grammatical break. In the original text, the, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. We translated it into English. There's no grammatical break in the chapter sections. Those were not written by Paul. Uh, those were added a few hundred years ago just to help us be able to read the Bible. And so there's just one flow of thought from 13 into 14. And so if we read it like that, this is the last verse from chapter 13. This is how it reads. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. So why is love the greatest of the three? Because it's eternal. It's unending. And he's saying, hey, listen, let your communal life, let your 
gathering together, your communal life be marked by the eternal, unending love of God. Let what you will possess 10,000 years from now define your practices today. Let what you will possess 10,000 years from now define your practices today. Because why? Because love, love, it sits at the core of for the common good. The heartbeat of for the common good at its core is love. And then he says, but hey, I want you to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. They are from the Spirit and they are good. Earnestly desire them. Just let love be your guide in practice. But then he says, of these gifts, I want you to especially, especially that you may prophesy. And so I think we need to pause and define prophecy here. Um, I'm using Stan Storm's definition I gave it to you a few weeks ago. Uh, This is his definition. It's the human report of divine revelation. So Sam Storm uh, defines it. Sam is a part of our Acts 29 family. He's a, he's a pastor in Oklahoma City. Defines it this way. Human report of divine revelation. But here's the challenge, and this is from Sam, and I appreciate his humility in acknowledging this. It says that prophecy is difficult to define because the New Testament never gives us a straightforward definition. So in light of that, uh, in, in light of that, I think it's best to understand if we could trace it through the primary prophetic message in the Bible, and then second, what the Bible says the primary content of prophecy is. So one, the primary message, two, the primary uh, content. And so here's how I, I see the pr- primary message in the Bible. It goes like this. Old Testament, kingdom is coming. Jesus, kingdom is here. The church, kingdom is expanding. Jesus' return, kingdom is global, which is why we say, hey, today our primary message is life in the already not yet kingdom. But then uh, we trace the content of prophecy and we get clarity on what we know at the primary content of prophecy from this. Luke 24, 44, this is Jesus. And he says, then he, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled that Jesus understood the primary prophetic message of the Old Testament, these were the three categories of the Old Testament, as about him, as testifying to him. And then if we fast forward to the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we have the primary message, kingdom is expanding, life in the already, not yet. And then the primary content, the person and work of Jesus which when it's framed that way, you can clearly understand why Paul would say in Thessalonians, hey, don't, don't despise prophecies. Hey, y'all are despise them. Don't despise them. They're, they're good. Test, hold fast to what's good, but they're good. Don't despise them. The question remains, though, um, how are they delivered? How, how is prophecy in the church, New Testament, how is it delivered? How is it communicated? Um, and Thistleton uh, commentator has done some good work on Corinthians, he says there's two ways that this has been understood in church history, and he traces them out. This is primarily two camps. Camp one is that it's more spontaneous, um, God giving a word to you for someone else. Or two, it's thought of as just, it's the sermons. It's simply equivalent to uh, the, the sermon, since we're communicating the divine words of God and uh, applying them, that it's the sermons. I, um, I think, uh, the best I'm able to understand it, that it's primarily, when we think of prophecy in the New Testament, it's primarily the first. Primarily God giving words to us for uh, others. And I, I think that because it's used distinct from teaching and preaching. 
but I also think there's prophetic elements to teaching and preaching because they're used as overlapping terms, which we're going to see in a minute. So that's prophecy. Now he moves on to tongues. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Okay, question one, what are tongues? Are they other human languages that we, uh, that we don't know but we're able to communicate in, or is it ecstatic speech that, that no one really can understand? Question two is, what are they for? What's the purpose of them? So to understand and answer these, we, we need to kind of frame it in a uh, kind of a biblical narrative. And so we go back to Genesis 11. There's a, a story. It's a fairly well-known story. It's called the Tower of Babel. And it's where humanity came together and said, hey, we're going to build a tower up to God. God looked down, not happy, dispersed humanity and confused their language. They couldn't communicate with one another. In other words, God, in Genesis 11, disordered human language. But then we have Acts 2. Acts 2, where not God going up to man, but the Spirit of God comes down to man. Disciples go out speaking in tongues, and this is what people say. Acts 2, 7 and 8. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in, our, in his own native language? You see, here, here is the primary function of tongues. The primary function of tongues is God reordering what he disordered in Genesis 11. God reordering what he disordered in Genesis 11. And so in Acts 2, what we have is that they are um, fairly clearly other human languages. But then we fast forward to Corinthians, and it says that they are mysteries in the Spirit. They are described as a mysterious language that uh, there are mysteries in the Spirit, which is why D.A. Carson, if you don't know who D.A. Carson is, he's brilliant, has like a thousand PhDs, um, says this. Were the tongues at Corinth real languages or something else? Were the human languages or languages that cannot be identified with any human language? This is an extraordinarily difficult question to answer despite the dogmatic claims made by proponents on either side. If you have 20 PhDs and you're trying to say, I don't know, that's how you say it. But I think the best evidence, the best evidence, and we say this with grace and kindness for those who don't agree because it is difficult to understand. Best evidence, as I see it, is that it's both. It's both. That in Acts 2, we have clear other languages. In Corinth, we have uh, languages that are not understandable as other human languages. But that does not... That does not affect Paul's primary point that he's making, uh, which he's going to get into now, verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So here's what we have. We have the effect of prophecy here. The effect of prophecy is it builds up, encourages, and souls the church. The effect of tongues is that it builds up the individual. And so when it comes to prophecy, here's what we know clearly. We know the um, content of prophecy. We, we know the effect of prophecy. The, the middle ground is where we have a lot of grace because the Bible is not nearly as clear as we want it to be. But we do know this, that Paul says, I, I want you to value the spiritual gifts, especially that you would prophesy. Why? It, 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 it builds up, consoles, encourages the church. That's why it says in verse 5, now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, 
unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Do you notice what Paul just did there? Do you notice that while affirming tongues, he now defines what he said at the end of chapter 12. At the end of chapter 12, when he said, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Higher is the same Greek word as as greater. It's earnestly desire the greater gifts. He defines it right here. He defines prophecy as the greater gift. Defines prophecy as the greater gift. Why? Because it's used for the common good. It fits in line with his thesis from chapter 12 about what the purpose of spiritual gifts are to build up the body, to be for the common good. When you gather, gifts that build up others are the greater gifts. And looking into this verse, this is why Gordon Fee, brilliant theologian, says, the building up of oneself is not a bad thing. It's simply not the point of gathered worship. I'm going to say that one again. The building up of oneself, not a bad thing simply not the point of gathered worship. See, I think this is the real challenge to us. Like the real arrow to the heart of us might be this right here, might be this, how would we answer our question? How would we answer the question, why do we do what we do? Do we do it for my good because I've got needs that I need to get met, or do I do it showing up for the good of others? Do I do it because I'm here looking, eyes open to meet the needs of others. I think Paul would say, hey, listen, the lens, when you put glasses on and you look at gathered worship through a new set of lenses, what I want you to do is see through a set of lenses that says, I'm here for the good of others. I'm here not to simply be a consumer of others, but I'm here to be a contributor to the spiritual life of others. And the brilliance of it is that if we're all contributors, we all get to consume without being consumers. I think that's brilliant. Paul says prophecy is the greater gift because it builds up others. That's why he says unless there's an interpreter because clear communication can build up, but unclear communication doesn't. And so from a practical side, what Paul wants when the church gathers is intelligible worship. Prophecy over tongues because it can be understood and therefore build up others. It can be used for the common good, which he's now going to drill into deeper, verse 6. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So if I come speaking a language that you don't understand, how will it benefit you? It, it won't. What will benefit you is a revelation, knowledge, teaching, prophecy. Now, th- these are not um, synonyms, but they are overlapping terms. They're overlapping in their content. What do I mean by that? Well, we've already seen that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. We've already seen Jesus teaching the scriptures as about him. And if we went back to chapter 1, we would see revelation and knowledge linked with the testimony of and the revealing of Christ. And so Paul's point in this is that what benefits you is what communicates Christ to you. What benefits one another is what communicates Christ to one another. Another, if you can't understand me, it does you no good, which he now illustrates in verse 7. Even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? for you'll be speaking into the air. 
Listen, I, uh, I, I love this illustration because um, instruments have this ability to affect the human soul, right? That music played, even without words, can just be beautiful and moving and stirring and affect you in powerful ways. But if I were to grab an instrument, it would affect you in powerful ways. It just would not be a positive effect. You would not say, oh, that's so pleasing to my ears. You would not say, oh, he's, he's trying. I, I've got a 20-month-old, 20-month-old, 20, right, 20, 22-month-old um, at, at home. I've started singing to her. I won't tell you the song because it's on the road again, on the road again, just can't. And when I do, she shushes me. <laughs> Kidding me, little girl? I will ground you for years. Um, Listen, if I were to play an instrument, it would not simply have a neutral effect on you. You would say, my ears, my, it hurts my ears. Speaking in tongues when others can't understand that they are not neutral, they're actually hurtful. Which is why he says this in verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. This is Paul drilling into his core issue right here. The word foreigner is the word barbaros. Um, Y'all want to say it together? Come on, barbaros. I used to have my wife do Greek flashcards with me in seminary, but I waited till we were married. I was going to lock it down before I asked her to do that. Um, Barbaros, what does that sound like? What's the word that sounds like? Barbarians, where do we get barbarian from? It, it meant an unsophisticated person who didn't speak Greek. It meant an unsophisticated person who didn't speak Greek. It's what they would say of people who are not one of them. It's what they would say of people who are not one of them. Paul's point, if I come to you speaking in tongues that you do not understand, it's as if I'm not one of you and you're not one of me. Which if we go back to chapter 12, verse 13, and the heart of his foundation he laid, for in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. See, here's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God takes foreigners and makes them family. And any use of a language that comes from the Spirit and takes family and makes them foreigners is not the proper use of that language. I'm going to say that one again. Here's what the Spirit of God does. Spirit of God takes foreigners and makes them family. And any use of a language that comes from the Spirit that takes family and makes them foreigners is not the proper use of that language. Let's keep reading. So with yourselves... Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, did, did you notice that Paul, he, he's not rebuking them for their longing for gifts of the Spirit. He's not rebuking that. Like, he's going to in a minute, but he just hasn't done it yet. He's saying, since you are, since you are eager for the things of the Spirit, strive to use them to build up the church. Strive to use them to build up the church, the church that Christ died for, the church that Christ was divided on the cross to create and unite together. When you gather, strive to build up, not to divide. And so here is Paul's foundational point, his governing principle for Christian worship. 
understandable worship that builds up. Understandable worship that builds up. And now what he's going to do for the rest of our text, he's going to take this principle and he's going to apply it. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now, if you're reading this for the first time and you're, and you're making your way through it, I would have expected, I would have expected Paul to say something like this. Um, Therefore, pray that you have the gift of prophecy. Pray not for tongues, but for prophecy. That's not what he says. He says, therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue, pray that you may interpret. Why? Because interpreted speech, clear, communicative speech can build up others. His, His issue is with intelligibility. It's not, it's not with tongues. It's with intelligible worship that can communicate to one another. Verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Gordon Fee looks into these verses and says, Hey, listen, Contrary to the modern, rationalistic Western mind, sanctification, edification, being built up can happen without going through the cortex of the brain. But when you gather together, that mind needs to be used. Why? Otherwise. 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 If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Listen, Paul is not delegitimizing the gift of tongues. He's simply saying that when you're gathered together as the church for worship, it's not the venue for it. Why? Because the outsider, the non-Christian, won't be able to understand and therefore say amen. They won't have the chance to understand and believe. And this is where Paul begins This is where Paul begins applying the global, historic mission of God to gathered worship for the church. And if you think about what he's doing, here's what I think he's doing. Where did tongues show up in the New Testament for the first time? Acts 2. And when they do in Acts 2, what happens? Outsiders say what? Amen. Amen. Outsiders say amen. He is applying the use and the purpose of tongues in Acts 2 to gathered worship in Corinth. And he's saying if outsiders are not able to say amen, it's not in line with Acts 2. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others and 10,000 words in a tongue. This is what one commentator says, Paul playing his ace, just throwing down the ace right here. And Paul's beating them at their own game. He said, listen, I, I know you think of yourself as spiritual because you speak in tongues. Listen, I speak in tongues more than any of you, but not when I show up to gather together. When I'm together with you guys, I'm speaking 10,000 words that you can understand. Why? Because my governing principle is love. Love, love that doesn't look to be exalted as the spiritual one, but love that looks to build up others that are around me. And now he's going to rebuke him in verse 20. Brothers, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 
Here is a direct rebuke from Paul to the church in Corinth. Now, the church in Corinth thought of themselves as mature, viewed tongues as a sign of maturity, and Paul is saying, listen, your preoccupation with them is a sign of your immaturity. 21, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even if they will not listen to me, says the Lord, thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. This is a notoriously difficult reference to understand what Paul means by it. But, um, and it's the first of two references to Isaiah at the end of the section that sit in contrast with one another. And this one is going back to Isaiah 28 where Israel was rejecting God's leading and God's judgment came through the people of Assyria, through the Assyrians, the language of the Assyrians. And this is, I think, the best understanding of what's going on right here that I've found just as the experience in Isaiah 28 did not result in the conversion of the hearers, but instead expressed alienation between God and his people, so also Paul indicates that the use of tongues in the church will result not in the conversion of unbelievers, but rather in their further alienation. Paul's point is that when you're gathered together, the, the presence and the manifestation of everybody speaking in tongues is not a sign of God's presence among you. It will not be interpreted by the outsiders as a sign of God's presence among you. It will be seen as a sign of their rejection. Again, bringing the purpose of tongues in Acts 2 forward, saying, listen, if they can't say amen, it's not in line with Acts 2. Verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? Paul is saying to Corinth, hey, listen, if the outsider, if the non-Christian, if they show up, if they're here among you, I'm assuming they're among you, Will they not think that you're out of your minds? Corinth, in your practice, think of the outsider. Think of your neighbor, Corinth. Corinth, think of your neighbor. In your practices, Corinth, think of your neighbor. Think of your neighbor, Corinth. Remember, remember that Jesus became an outsider to reorder what was disordered in your life. Corinth, think of your neighbors because Jesus thought of you. Corinth, when you gather, I want you thinking of your neighbor. Sojourn, think of your neighbor. When you gather together, Corinth, think of your neighbor. Sojourn, think of your neighbor. Verse 24, but if I'll prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called, account, called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God really is among you, Paul, in keeping with his understanding of prophecy from the Old Testament, these words from God speaking directly into the hearts of human souls through the Spirit of God. Paul is saying, not the, not the only purpose, but part of the purpose, one of the purposes of gathered worship is the conversion of the outsider. It's that the outsider might come in, see God among you, fall on his face in worship. 
called to account, secrets of heart disclosed. And yesterday, I sat in that chair right where David is sitting. Band rehearsal or uh, band auditions going on, 15 people in the room sitting there crying as I wrote this, remembering the day that this happened to me. Showing up on a Sunday morning because a girl invited me. And the Spirit of God did what the Spirit of God does and ripped my soul open. Because somebody thought of their neighbor. But did you notice? Did you notice that Paul says, hey, listen, this happens, this happens when you are ministering to one another. Think about how the letter uh, began. First Corinthians began like this. Hey, I've heard there's divisions among you. And listen, let me tell you one example of division. Some of you say, hey, I follow Apollos. I follow this person. I follow that person. I follow this teacher. I follow that teacher. Did you know Paul did not say, hey, listen, if you have Apollos, obviously the outsider is going to think God is among you. No, no. They, they walk in, see you ministering to one another and say, hey, Surely, if there is a God, he is here, he is among you, which is a second allusion to Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 14, where it says, foreigners will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. The heart of God from beginning to end has been outsiders coming into his presence, falling on their face and worshiping him. Paul is simply applying the eternal, unending heart of God to the church in Corinth, to the church gatherings in Corinth, which brings us back to where we began today. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we gather together like this on Sunday mornings for worship? Here's our answer. One, so the church will be built up and strengthened. Two, so that the outsider will be redeemed. A few closing applications for us. Should Sunday gatherings be spaces where Christians come in looking to minister to one another and therefore build one another up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Two, should Sunday gatherings be spaces where non-Christians are invited, welcomed, wanted? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you're one of them, if you're a friend of somebody who got invited in here, we, we want you to know that you are welcome here. Uh, we want you here, but I don't want to bait and switch. I want you to know that what we want is for you to look among us and say, God, if you're real, you're here, and I want you. That's what we want. Three, why, why do we want to plant sojourn congregations throughout the entirety of our city? Here's why. We want gatherings like this one to be as geographically and relationally accessible to every man, woman, and child in our city as possible. That's why. So the church will be strengthened, the outsider redeemed. Because when the content of what we have to say is the testimony of Jesus, it's the same Jesus who saves and sanctifies at the same time. It's the Jesus who does what he has always done. Are tongues and prophecy legitimate gifts for the church, for the good of the church? Yes. When we're gathered for worship, is one preferential to the other? Yes. Why? Because one builds up 
the church, intelligibility for the sake of strengthening the Christian, the salvation of the non-Christian. That is why we gather, so that Jesus can do what Jesus has always done. Let's pray. Father, I, I know that I know that there are um, hours, hours we could have spent talking about um, this passage and this text. I, I pray that we would not be afraid of what we don't understand. And just because tongues and prophecy might not be something we understand, that you would um, undercut fear over, uh, over them. If they're from the Spirit, they are for our good. I pray we would see that. And I pray that we would see that when we gather together, that what, what Paul wants is intelligibility. What you want is people to be able to be understood so that, so that we can build one another up and so that the outsiders can become insiders. So people might be drawn near to you. And so I pray this would be marked, that this would mark us, this would mark Sojourn Heights, that it would mark Sojourn Galleria and Sojourn... Uh, Spring Branch and Sojourn Montrose and Lord willing one day Sojourn East End and Sojourn Bracewood. I pray that the power and presence of God would be on display when we gather through a body who ministers to one another so that everyone might look around and say, if there is a God, he is clearly here. It's our heart. That's our prayer. We're asking you to do it. We can't create that. Would you give us lenses to pursue it? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.